0: Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Father, we bow before you and God, if our hearts are attuned to what we just sang, we have this overwhelming feeling of gratitude for the fact that we've been given life already beyond the grave. And God, that's not something we've experienced yet, Lord. We haven't experienced death. We haven't experienced the grave. And yet, Lord, we are reminded this morning of what's beyond that, of eternal life, of eternal life that's given to us because of what Jesus has accomplished. we dying on the cross and being raised to new life. And because of that, Lord, everything's different for us now. If our faith is in you, everything is different. Lord, all anxiety is gone. All insecurity is gone. All dissatisfaction with the things of this world, it's gone, Lord. And we have found all that we need in you. And yet, Lord, we can say that with our lips. We can hear that prayed. And yet we feel at times very different. Lord, we feel the crushing anxiety of this world. We feel the insufficiency of our performance, Lord. We feel the despair and the depression of living in such times of darkness. And so, God, we pray this morning as we open up your word, Lord, this beautiful gift that you've given to us, Lord, your spoken word to us. God, would you show us the reality that is ours in Christ? And Lord, decrease the gap between who we are right now and who you're calling us to be in him. God, do this work in our midst. I'm so aware, Lord, I'm so aware of a pre- as a preacher of how much I need this work done in myself, Lord. I preach this message to myself first, Lord. I need it. I need your work. And God, we're all here. We need you to work in our midst. And so do it, we pray. God, change us. I pray this all in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. You can grab your seat. As you two, you can take your copy of God's word and open it up to... Philippians chapter 1. And our ushers are going to be making their way to the front of the worship center. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, uh, you can stick your hand in the air. And they're going to make sure that they get a copy into your hands. And if you don't own a copy of God's word, then you can keep this. This is our gift to you. We trust that as you read it, you will be blessed. Now this morning, we're starting a new series on the book of Philippians. And When the elders and I come up with our preaching schedule, we always uh, seek to be as intentional as possible with what we believe God wants to do in our midst. And so we don't, you know, it's not like we have a big wheel in the office and, you know, we've got all the names of the books of the Bible in there. We spin it. We pick one out at random. We try to be as intentional as possible. And so I want to just think with you for a moment about why we might choose the book of Philippians. And there are a multitude of reasons, but maybe just let me put a few before you. The first is because this. Philippians is very likely... One of your favorite books in the entire Bible. I told my small group this week, we're preaching through Philippians. People were fist pumping, they were jumping in the air. Two people were hugging each other, jumping up and down. I thought this is a crazy reaction. Some of that was made up. And yet there is this excitement, I'm sure that's in you, as we go through the book of Philippians, because I'm sure that for many of you, like for myself, you can remember working through Philippians and the Lord really working you. I, I remember one of the first books where where I really became serious in my walk with Christ. I was listening to a sermon series, and the pastor was working through Philippians. I remember just listening to these sermons over and over and over again, because God had so much for me in here. In fact, if you wanted to start a business selling Christian mugs, if you just took some of the most popular verses from Philippians, you could have a really successful business. That's why Joel wants to see you in the foyer. He's got a little stand-up shop set up with some Christian mugs. That was, I'm just kidding, that's not true at all. And yet, you know, there's many verses, aren't there, in this book that have kind of taken on a life of their own. You can think of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or Philippians 4.4, 4. rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Or one of my own personal favorites, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These are many amazing verses, and yet, in many ways, some of these verses have kind of like created a life of their own. They've been pulled out of the book, and it's important that we understand exactly what each of them are saying. The second reason why we have chosen to work through Philippians at this time is because Philippians really gives legs to the series that we just finished on the church. If the church church series was kind of like making us book smart about what Jesus says the church is to be and, and how we are to live, well, then Philippians is the street smarts of the church. This is what the intimacy that God created the church to experience then looks like. And as we see the fellowship, the gospel partnership, between Paul and and this church that he planted, as we see the intimate relationship between them, my hope and my prayer is that it becomes overwhelmingly compelling to us that we see the level of intimacy between Paul and the church and we say, Lord, I want that for me. I want to be a part of that kind of community. And we not only begin seeking it for our own lives, but we begin praying for it in the midst of our own church that God would give us this fellowship like we will see between Paul and the Philippian church. And thirdly, and the last point, and really because we have to stop listing points at some point, there's a lot of things we could say about why we might do Philippians. But I really believe that the the situation that the Philippian church finds itself in as it seeks out Paul's... Welfare is very similar to the situation that we find ourselves in. See, one of the main reasons that Paul writes Philippians is because he's in jail. He's very likely in jail in Rome, and he's visited by Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus is sent by the Philippian church. It's like a thousand mile journey. It's a, it's a ridiculous journey to make in that time. And yet the Philippian church was so concerned about the, the well-being of Paul that they sent Epaphroditus, with. they loaded him up with gifts, they loaded him up with food to care for Paul. And when Epaphroditus gets to Philippi, he, he, or sorry, to Rome, he, he kind of crawls into Rome. Like he almost dies himself making the journey. And he crawls up to Paul's jail cell, And finds that Paul is doing as well as ever. And so Paul writes this letter because he meets with Epaphroditus. He receives the gift. And he writes a letter to the Philippian church, sending Epaphroditus back, hoping to send Timothy along with him in the near future. And so very much what caused this letter to be written was that the Philippian church was looking at what had happened to Paul. And Paul was the father of their faith. All the grace and Peace that had flowed from, from God into their lives had really flowed through Paul. And they're looking at Paul, and here's Paul in chains in prison. And immediately their mind goes to this. If Paul's in chains, well, maybe the gospel's in chains. Maybe this good news that Paul preached, maybe it doesn't actually work. Maybe the power of the gospel has come to a screeching halt. We feel that, don't we, in our day and age? In fact, we just finished a series where we talked about the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 pretty constantly, where Jesus said that he would build his church, and that the gates of hell would not stop it, and yet we look around at our culture, we look around at our society in many ways, doesn't it kind of seem like the gospel is losing power, like the gospel is no longer affecting our culture and our country and our society like it used to? I mean, you don't need me to quote statistics here. We can look and see that the church is in decline in our day and age. You know, churches left, right, and center are closing their doors. And if that's not enough to discourage us, we look outside the church and we see that culture is increasingly secularizing. See, 15, 20 years ago, I'm sure you can remember, we, we kind of looked at, at the, the world and, and we felt like we were on the outside, And we would put, you know, songs on the radio, like Jesus Freak, and we'd be like, yeah, we really are freaks in this world, aren't we? That was a pop culture reference for Christians, I think, that probably didn't land with some of you the way that it landed with me. That song was constantly on, feeling like I'm a freak because I'm following Jesus. And now, but but now more than ever, in a way that you probably couldn't imagine 15 or 20 years ago, to be a Christian is really to be offensive to secular values. The values of our society. We feel this tension almost daily. In fact, a few weeks ago, the, the men of our church met together to eat KFC. That was a secondary thing. We met together to talk about what it meant, means to be a man in this day and age, a biblical pursue biblical manhood. And many of the questions, in fact, I think almost all of the questions, surrounded culture now. How do we carry out what the Bible's called us to be as men when culture is so far away from the biblical standard? It's increasingly difficult to send our kids to secular schools. It's increasingly difficult to keep our jobs in secular institutions. It's increasingly difficult to live among our neighbors without being labeled something like bigots or an enemy at least of cultural progression because of our Christian values. See, it wasn't long ago where to be a Christian, it, it was kind of like a net gain in culture. And even politicians were worried about things like building churches. And Yet here we find ourselves in this day and age where to be a Christian has profound effects, negative effects in our culture, in our society. And we, we might look at that, We might ask the same question. Has the gospel lost its power? Is the gospel no longer as effective as it once was? Is the gospel in Newmarket, in Ontario, in Canada, in the world, is the gospel in chains? As we ask that question, Paul has much to provide for us in the way of an answer. And his answer really is this. That if our life is in Christ... That if your life is rooted in Christ, then all of these external signs really mean nothing. If our life is rooted in Christ, that we, then we understand that he's the prime example of this. That it is the suffering of God's children that leads to exaltation. It is the cross before the crown. And so let me ask you this as we embark on this series in Philippians, you ever see the way that the world's going and just feel a sense of concern, maybe a sense of anxiety, a sense of fear, a sense of disillusionment? You ever wonder if the church, if the gospel is going to make it? I want you to know this morning that God knows. He knows how you feel. He knows. Every night that you are awake with that anxiety, with that fear, with whatever negative feeling it is that you have, he knows, he hears. And this morning and throughout this series, he wants to guide us to the place of joy. And he wants us to know that none of these external things that are happening, if you know Christ, if your life is rooted in Christ, none of these things can rob you of that joy. There's a path that you and I, can walk on this morning. That is a path of joy. Now, 14 times in the book of Philippians, Paul will bring up this word, either in the noun form or the verb form, of joy. Whether it's a command to rejoice or whether it's speaking of joy, 14 times in the short book, Paul will speak of joy. Now, over 50 times, Paul will bring up the name Christ. In nine of those times, Paul's going to be fleshing out a theology of what it looks to live in, what it looks like to be in Christ and so just from those statistics alone we get a sense of what Philippians is all about Philippians is all about the joy that you can have in Christ regardless of your circumstance no matter how much it seems like you're losing in life right now if you know Christ and you are in Him then you can have joy this is the promise for you In fact, it's probably good for us to define joy here. And I I believe as we work through this series, we'll come back to this a number of times. But I really want to set the foundation this morning of joy. And one of the best ways that I've heard joy defined is this. That joy is the flag that is flown in the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Let me say that again. This is so important for us. Joy is the flag that is flown in the castle of the Christian heart, when the King is in residence there. In other words, the picture that we're painting is this: is that joy is something that is offered to you. Which if you biblically find, we're talking theology here, if you theologically understand how to find joy in Christ, then it is a flag that flies and nothing that happens outside the castle walls can affect that joy because the king is in the castle. Christ is seated on the throne of your heart. And this is so practical for for so many of us because so many of us are walking through circumstances right now and there are things happening in your life and you're looking at these things, these circumstances, these situations and you're saying, oh, this, this is really robbing me of joy. If God would just change my circumstance, if he just changed my situation, if he just reversed the script here, then I'd have joy. And God wants you to understand that it's not what happens outside the castle walls that will bring you joy, it's what happens inside that there is a position of your heart, there's a stature of your heart, that, that so long as you have your heart in this position, in submission to Christ, you can have joy. In a world where there's every reason for anxiety, in a world where there's every reason for despair, in a world where there's every reason for apathy, Christ is calling us to joy. This morning, we want to set a foundation for that. And one of the ways that you know that Philippians is one of my favorite books, as you'll see up here. Oh, we, we already went to the first point, but you'll see the title slide says Philippians 1, 1 to 5. And I had to make a last-minute decision in between the time that these slides were made and the time that we are spending together this morning to cut this sermon in half. And so we're really talking about the foundation of joy here, and we're spending our time this morning in the first two verses of Philippians. There's so much here for us. Look at what Paul says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we're doing this morning we're setting a foundation for joy for our life. How do we find joy? What's the foundation of joy? Where do we plant our feet if we want to see this indestructible joy in our life? Ultimately, the call of Philippians is to seek joy's foundation. Now, notice here that Paul begins by, as he often does, introducing himself. And yet he doesn't only introduce himself, he's also introducing Timothy. And Paul, in these verses, is saying, I- I'm writing this to you on, with the authority of both myself and Timothy. Now, we'll see through Philippians that it's very much Paul who's writing. And he'll speak of his own personal situation in a way that Timothy would not be able to. And yet what Paul is doing here is including Timothy corporately to say that Timothy is in agreement with all that Paul writes. Now this is significant because the Philippian church is very familiar with Timothy. And Timothy is actually going to play a significant role in the future of the Philippian church. Later in Philippians, we're going to read, Paul hopes to send Timothy to the church in order to encourage it. And so that Timothy might be encouraged himself. But Timothy's not only a significant player in the future of the church, Timothy's also a significant player in the planting of this church. In fact, I think it's good that we get a context of the Philippian church. So do, a favor, or do me a favor and turn over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. I want you to see the miraculous foundation of the Philippian church as Paul planted it. Now in Acts chapter 16... Paul is with Timothy and Silas and Luke, and he's on a second missionary journey, this journey that he is making around Asia Minor to preach the gospel and to plant churches. And in verses 6 to 10, we really get a phenomenal picture of what's happening. Paul is, is going through Asia Minor, city to city, And the Spirit is very intimately leading him and his team of preachers so that he tries to go to some cities and the door is clearly closed to that cities and yet other cities the door is clearly opened. And then we find in the midst of this leading that Paul has a vision. You read of it in verse 9. It's a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and urging him and saying to him, come over to Macedonia and help us. This would be like if your neighbor you know, tomorrow morning, stood out on the front of their porch and called over to your house and said, hey, hey, come preach the gospel to us. You'd be like, all right, I think something significant's happening here. And so Paul, in obedience, goes to Macedonia, and he goes to one of the major cities of Macedonia, which is Philippi. Now, I'm sure you could imagine the anticipation of Paul and his team of preachers as they approach Philippi. God has called them here. They have called him here, asking for his help, asking him to preach the gospel. And yet what we find is that when Paul gets to Philippi, God's work is almost completely absent so that there's not even a synagogue in Philippi. At that time, according to Jewish custom, if you had more than 10 Jews in a city, you could start a synagogue. And so as Paul goes to Philippi, he always looks for the synagogue first in any city he goes to, but he can't find it. And so in verse 13, we read this of Acts chapter 16. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Prayer. There's no synagogue, but Paul hears that there are a small group of God-believers who are meeting to pray. And so Paul comes to this place, and he meets there a woman named Lydia. And Lydia is from another city. She's a successful businesswoman and a worshiper of God. And there Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lydia is saved, and we're told in verse 15 that Lydia and her household then invites Paul to her house— and there, there's the first church meeting of the Philippian church. It's just this miraculous work of God in this one family. Well, the work doesn't stop there. See, in verse 16, Paul meets a girl who is possessed with a demon. And she, he delivers that girl to salvation in God. He preaches the gospel this girl to it. And this, gospel, th- this girl is then saved. And yet, the Philippians are noticing, the city is noticing, and so they, they throw Paul and Silas in jail. And yet, you find something about the apostles at this time, is that you just can't rob their joy from them. It doesn't matter what you do. You beat them up, they come back joyful. You throw them in jail, look what they do in jail in verse, 15, sorry, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Philippians are looking at these guys and and being like, these guys are so annoying. They just won't stop having joy. You can't break them. You put them in jail and they just stay up all night singing. See, there's a joy that Paul exuded when he planted the Philippian church that the Philippian church had seen firsthand. What the Philippian church had experienced was really the explosive power of the gospel. So the the power that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 1, where he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But now time has passed, and the Philippians, they write to Paul wondering if if the gospel really still has this power. They had seen firsthand the gospel move in power, and they wondered, does it still have that power for me today? And I wonder if you're at a place like that. I wonder if you're at a place where you can look back to a time in your life where like God was so near to you. You would read the the word of God, and it was like the ink was fresh. You'd feel the ink to see if it would come off on your fingers. It just seemed so relevant to your life. But now you find yourself in this place where, where you've just grown apathetic to God's work. You feel like, is God still so near to me as he was back then? Is God's word still so powerful as it was back then? We have this this desire to experience God's grace afresh like we did. And Paul writes Philippians to say that the power of God that was working through him when the church was planted still works through him now. Nothing has changed. He still has everything he needs. See, in many ways, Philippians comes a book where it could easily become a book of complaining. In every chapter, Paul is going to talk about something that he has lost, and yet in every chapter, Paul is going to point us to his joy. Paul includes Timothy because he was profoundly important in the planting of the church, but Timothy is also an example, I think, of what Paul is going to talk about so much in Philippians. So then, Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, speaking of Timothy, Paul says, For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. And sorry, starting in verse 20, he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul has seen such a work in Timothy, it's an exemplary work. Timothy doesn't seek his own interests. Timothy seeks the interests of Christ. That's why in Philippians 1, verse 1, going back to Philippians now, you'll see that as Paul describes himself in Timothy, he says that they are servants of Christ Jesus. They're servants of Christ Jesus. I want you to see this first about seeking a foundation of joy in your life. The first thing you need to do if you want to seek a foundation of joy, if you want to set a foundation of joy for your life, the first thing you must do is seek to be a servant of Jesus' will. The question that you must ask yourself every day is not what what interests me today, what do I want to do today? But if you want joy in your life, then the first thing you need to, to ask yourself is this, what does Jesus want of me today? Timothy does this in every way. He he doesn't seek his own interests. He seeks those of Christ. And so Paul labels both Timothy and himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, I think that the language servant is probably a little soft here. In fact, the Greek word here is doulos. And elsewhere in Scripture, doulos is actually translated as slave. This is a, a word of ownership. Paul is saying in every way that, that he is in submission to the will of God. What, what God says, what Jesus Christ calls him to do, so Paul does. It's the same word that's used of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate example of this in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says there that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a do a servant a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Now, this is what Paul is showing us practically. Practically, he's showing you and I this morning that the greatest way that you can serve your own interests is not actually by making life all about yourself. Isn't that what we often do? We often think that if we truly want a happy and fulfilled and joy life, then what we need to do is make sure everything revolves around me. And Jesus is calling us this morning to say you will not have joy until everything revolves around him. The foundation of joy is when your life's aim is to seek Jesus's interests and not your own. And so the question is not not What do I want to do today? The question is, what does Jesus want me to do today? And I want you to understand that when it comes to your joy, this changes everything. You see, when we have an attitude of serving our own interests, we actually can't serve anybody else's interests. And we especially can't serve Jesus's interests. And so when we have this attitude of desiring to serve our own interests, what happens is we actually expect Jesus to then serve us. Do you understand that? Like when we we have this attitude of like, I'll find joy by seeking joy in and of myself, we actually have this expectation that God exists to serve our own interests. And many of us live like this. Many of us live like God is like sort of this genie in a bottle. And he's around for when you need something. Like, like when, when, God, when all of a sudden your life isn't enough, all of a sudden you lack something, like your health is taken from you, or you're in some situation where you're just like at wit's end, you don't know what to do, then God is there for you. And many of us live like this. And so let me ask you really practically right now, who's, who's serving who right now in, in your walk with the Lord? Are you serving the Lord? Or is the expectation... That Jesus is serving you. See, if, if you have this complex where the reason you're not joyful in life, the reason you're not happy in life is because of some sort of circumstance in your life. Like maybe it's, it's your marriage. Maybe, maybe your spouse is just not the person that on your wedding day you thought they were going to be. And maybe your, maybe your spouse actually does things that, that you feel like it robs you of joy and happiness. And you have this picture of like, if they would just be like this, if they would just be like this, then I could live a joy-filled life. Maybe for others of us, we think the reason we lack joy right now is because we lack some material thing. Our house is too small, car is too old. I want you to see if if this is the way that you view joy, that, that you don't have joy and happiness because of some sort of circumstance in your life, you need to know that your heart is situated for Jesus to serve you and not you to serve Jesus. Because what you then are saying is that if Jesus delivers me from this situation, if Jesus puts me in a better situation, then I'll have joy. And instead what Jesus is looking to you in this situation is, is and he's is saying is this, I've put you here so that you can serve not your own interests. This isn't about you. This is about me. See, many of us, we have things backwards here. There are many of us who slip into treating God like this genie in the bottle. And so when we find ourselves in a place of need, then, it's the, then we walk close to God. And so long as we don't have that circumstantial thing, and so long as God doesn't work things out the way we want them to go circumstantially, we will not be joyful. See, many of us are like the mature version of the toddler who's in your house, who stamps their feet when they don't get to read the book that they want to read. And many of us, like very practically, if you you can imagine the mature picture of that, the mature version of that, that's many of us with God right now. Our arms are folded. Until you do this for me, God, I will not be joyful. Until you change my situation, I will not be happy. But this morning, I want you to see what's happening. God is unleashing a new foundation for joy. God is showing us that you won't find joy when you seek your own interests. You will only find joy when you serve Jesus' interests. This is the foundation of joy, the one who views themselves as a servant of Christ, the one who does what Jesus wills them to do. This is where your joy is found in giving yourself over to the service of Christ. But secondly, I want you to see that joy's foundation is found through devotion in Christ. Devotion in Christ. And so you'll notice there that Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus and then he writes in the second half of verse one, he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now it's significant here. Paul could have called the church at Philippi anything. And yet he chooses this word very specifically. He chooses to call these Christians at Philippi saints. Well, what is a saint? The answer for many of us as we think about, uh, of what comes to mind as we think about saint is probably much like the child who when asked what a a saint is, he said, well, they're the person who's on the window, who's dead and keeps the light from coming in. And that's very much, you know, what we think about of a saint is really the Roman Catholic view of, of this dead person who's kind of been immortalized in history. And the Roman Catholic view of saints is that these are people that we pray to And yet here we recognize that Paul is calling every person who is in Christ Jesus a saint. Now, the meaning of a word saint is is really a a holy person. And that's pretty significant, isn't it? If I came up here this morning and I said, "Hey, hey, listen, holy people, all the holy people in this room, I have a message for you. My guess is that many of you would be like, looking at the person beside you. Like, I think that must be them because I know my life and I don't feel that holy at times. If I came up and I said, hey, listen, I have a message for you, but only for you if you're devoted to God. If your life is separated from sin, you're devoted to God, you're a holy person, this message is for you, many of us would probably zone out. We look at our life. I I know that there are many areas in my life that I am not devoted to God, that I am not separated from sin. All of us if we're honest with ourselves, would fall into that category. And yet, as Paul looks at the Philippian church, he says that every Christian here is a saint. Every Christian is a holy person. Every Christian is a person who's devoted to holiness and separated from sin. What Paul is doing here is showing us that that in Christ, our identity is an identity of holiness. It's an identity of devotion to him. This is who Christ has made us to be in our salvation. We are a new transformation. And in our new transformation, our desire is for the things of the Spirit. This is what Paul fleshes out so much in Romans 8. He says, if you are of the flesh, then you're going to love things of the flesh. But the Holy Spirit has come. This is Romans 8 theology, and it's so good. The Holy Spirit has come, and he makes you cry, Abba, Father. He puts these desires in your heart that you could never have apart from him. Desires for holiness, these desires for devotion. I want you to know to understand here that this is fundamental to our Christianity is our union in Christ, in which He is doing this work. So that notice that, that Paul even talks to the elders, which the ESV is translated there as overseers and the deacons, and he says that that they are in a separate category. That he's writing to the saints with. Those people. This is for all believers. This is true of anyone who is in Christ, that their heart is then devoted to Him. Paul writes to these people, he calls them holy people. And our question needs to be this why can Paul call them saints? Like, is the Philippian church perfect? Are they like really holy people? You know, as we think about the Philippian church, should we think about people who like they never sin, they're perfect? Well, Paul tells us exactly why he can call them saints is because they are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that there? Saints in Christ Jesus. This is an identity marker. In other words, what Paul is telling us is this, that who we are as Christians is because of where we are as Christians. In fact, it's a little bit of a play on words, and you see this a little bit more in the original Greek, but... But Paul's really talking about two different locations here. First, he says that these saints are in Christ Jesus, but these saints are also in Philippi. Two different locations. They're both in the city, and yet they are holy not because they're in Philippi, but because they are in Christ. And so we need to understand this this morning. The reason why we are devoted to Christ is because of the work that Christ is doing in us. This is God's primary work. God's primary work is to work in us so that we desire him. Look with me for a moment. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul's going to flesh this out. The primary work that God is doing in us is working in us so that we desire him. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Where Paul says, for it is God who works in you. And what is the work that God is doing in you? You see it there? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen, there are some Christians in the room right now who are always getting down on themselves. You're you're like, you're never good enough. All your efforts, they're always like garbage. You're always getting down on yourself. You always recognize how much better you could be doing. You constantly beat yourself up. You're constantly discouraged. And I want you to see here, though, that if there is any desire, I'm talking like desire, not even action. If there's any desire in your heart right now to do the the will of God, to live for Jesus Christ, do you understand that cannot be put there by the flesh? It must have been put there by the Spirit. You can't fabricate that. Only the Spirit can do that work. And anytime there's this sort of longing to get after God, to pursue Him, I want you to see the, the fingers of God in that. This is God's work. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul has just finished explaining that the reason why God forgives is because when God forgives sin, He gets more and more and more glory. It's like it's, it's, re- it's really math in Romans chapter 5. The more God forgives, the more glory he gets. This is the gospel. It's so astounding that it causes you to ask this question, the question that Paul asked in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. If that's true, like if God's grace abounds when our sin abounds, why don't we just sin so that grace can abound all the more? If, if you really understand the gospel, that's actually the question that you start to ask. If God's forgiveness is so free and so full, and he does it because he gets glory, then we should just sin more and more and more so that God gets more glory. And Romans Romans chapter 6 deals with this. Paul asks the question in in Romans 6 verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? But then look what he says. He points us to to the same thing we're pointed to in Philippians 1. He says, by no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You know what Paul's answer is? Paul's answer as to why you shouldn't sin is because you are united to Christ. You have union with him. This is your gospel reality, is that Christ, by faith, by your faith, Christ is in you. There's been a categorical change in you. There's been an identity shift in you. So that you are no longer a sinner. You are now a saint. And your desire is for holiness, it's been a categorical change of identity for you. So that any sin that remains in you is actually now inconsistent with who you are in Christ. It's no longer who you are. You imagine for a moment that you went through all the work. I mean, I've heard that it's a lot of work in Canada. Imagine you went through all the work of adopting a child from like a third world country and, and you've adopted this child and really saved him from a life of poverty and you bring him into your home and it's warm and you feed him a, a warm meal and you put him in a warm bed and everything is amazing for this child. They now have new status. They are one of your children and you are seeking to give this child everything that they could possibly have. And the next day you wake up and the child's gone in the bed. And you start freaking out a little bit. You start looking around for the child. They're not in the house. And you go outside and you see that the the child is back in their homeless clothes. And they're knocking on the neighbor's doors and they're begging for food. I'm sure there'd be a level of embarrassment for you as they do that on the neighbor's house. But there'd also be this level of like, this is no longer who you are. Our pantry's full. You don't need that stuff anymore. You have everything you need here. This is why we come and we proclaim songs like we sang this morning. Christ, you are enough. Because we're saying everything we need has been given to us by God. And the ways that we go and search out for other things of the world as though we do not yet have them is inconsistent with who we are in Christ. Our situation has been changed. And so it is with us, Christian. The reason that we are saints, the reason that we are devoted to holiness, the reason that we have these desires for holiness within us is because we are in Christ. Now, this is so important for all of us to hear. But for some of us to hear, it's important to hear because you actually don't really have this relationship with Christ where you are in him. You've actually never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And so you're here this morning, and and I'm fully convinced that there are people here this morning who are here because they think that they can earn favor with God. They're still like that that begging child who who hasn't been adopted yet. And so they're coming and they're saying, God, look at me, I'm a church. I'm a church, aren't I doing good? You, You should love me now, right? All these things I've done over this past week, I mean, I know they're bad, but at least I'm here. And even tomorrow, some of you guys will still be driven by works. You'll open up your Bible and say, God, look what I'm doing. Look, pretty righteous. God, I shared the gospel with someone at work today. I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? And we're pursuing this holiness. We're pursuing this righteousness. But it is not of Christ. It is of our own power. It's of our own volition. And I want you to understand that at the final day, this will never come cut it. You need something greater than this. You need to be changed from the inside. You need faith in Christ. And, and you know what happens the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ? You are a new creation. You are given a new heart that desires good things. But the reality for many of us is that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and we are in Christ, But we are, and we understand how salvation needs to be all of Christ we understand that we understand that we can't save ourselves but when it comes to our sanctification when it comes to our growth when it comes to our maturing and our pursuit of holiness we think well now it's all on me it's all on me i i, I better work hard to to read the bible I better work hard to make sure I get to church every Sunday and to pray and to make sure that I'm thankful for the things that I should be thankful for and participating in small group. And so even though we understand that we're not saved by works, we certainly think that we grow by our own works. Paul's pointing us to a new power here. The power will never come from you. You cannot just will good works in your life. It must come from Jesus Christ being in you. Only he can accomplish the work that will lead to you desiring to follow him. And so take, take just take as an example Bible reading. How many of us, I'm even including myself here at times, how many of us struggle with consistent Bible reading? And we constantly think about it. We know we need to read the Bible. I, I know I need to do it, and yet we look at it, and, and the thing we think, the problem is, is that I, I just I don't have a good routine. It's a habitual problem. I'm just not waking up early enough. I'm just sleeping through the alarm. And if I just had a better routine, you know, if I just didn't have, you know, this job and I, didn't have, I wasn't so busy, then I could read God's Word. And yet the reality here is, is that none of that is True. See, the problem at the end of the day has to be the heart. The problem is that we don't read God's word because in our heart we just don't desire it. Let me show you how that's true. You know how that's true? I've never met a, I've met a lot of Christians who have trouble reading God's word. I have never met a Christian who has trouble eating every day of the week. They always believe, all of us, right? We all believe, I got. well, I gotta eat. I can't survive if I don't eat. Like we have this heart level belief that if I don't eat, I am going to die, and so we ne- we don't, maybe we'll miss a meal, but we certainly don't miss a long time eating. because we know we need it. And listen, Christian, if, if you knew that you needed God's word, you would never miss getting to it. You'd be like Jesus who says, man cannot live on bread alone, but must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you truly believed that God's word was necessary for your life, you would never go a day without Reading it, or thinking about it, or meditating on it, or memorizing it. See, this, this is my hope right now. My hope right now is that there's this spirit of conviction. As you look back in your life and you see the, that all the inconsistency in Bible reading is not because of your circumstance, it's because of your heart. My hope right now is that what's happening in me is like it, that it's happening in you. There's this like, oh man, I am so messed up. I don't, like, how do I even fix myself? It's, my, it's a heart problem. That I just don't desire God's word enough. And that is so good, such a good place to be. To recognize that your problems are internal. Because when you look up and you see the gospel, you also see that it's not only your sin that remains in you, but Jesus Christ is also in you. And he is committed to this internal change. And so you come to this place of desperation where you say, Jesus, I can't do this. Jesus, this has to be you. And right in that moment, you are experiencing what Paul is talking about here, union with Christ. He's in you. you. Jesus is more committed to your growth than you will ever be. You will never experience uh, even a fraction of the commitment that Jesus has committed to your growth. And to your sanctification, Jesus is so committed to you. He's begun this work. He's going to bring it to completion because he is in you. See, apart from life in Christ, none of the works we ever do will truly last. I've talked about it before. We've illustrated it before. We love this illustration that that to, to try to change by just doing different things is like trying to grow apples by taping apples to your apple tree. It just doesn't work. This is a heart problem. We need heart change. So you know what happens practically then? You see the heart problem You recognize that the reason you don't read or the reason you don't do whatever it is you want to do is because ultimately you don't believe you do it and you turn to Jesus and you say, Jesus, change me. Change me. You know what's amazing is when you turn to Jesus, the moment you do, you find grace. Look at verse two with me of Philippians chapter one. He says says these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to see this as the third thing we must seek We're seeking joy's foundation as we seek grace from Christ. Notice, biblically, there's only one place that we can find grace and peace. It's from God the Father, Paul says, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only source of which grace and peace can be found. And Paul's desire is that this grace flows to the church, that it comes to the church, that the church finds this grace and peace Now, as Paul talks about grace here, grace from God the Father and grace from Christ, what he's talking about here is the work that Christ has come to do. It's a desire that the church know the freedom that is available to them only in Jesus Christ. It's a desire that the church experience that freedom in their life. And we know that this is Paul's greatest desire, is, is that the Philippian church walk in the freedom that has been won for them in Jesus Christ because he begins his letter here. But you'll notice in chapter 4, verse 23, he also ends his letter there, saying to the, closing his letter by saying this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want you to really practically understand this is what God wants for you this morning. God wants for you to experience his grace. This is a total attitude transformation for some of you because because some of us live like what God wants us to really experience is his condemnation. We know our sinfulness. We know our wickedness. We know our inadequacy. And so as we look to God, we feel like if he's going to offer us anything, it's going to be his rebuke. It's going to be his condemnation. It's going to be arms folded. Why are you living the way that you're living? But you know what happens every time we turn to God? You know what we receive? Grace. Grace. Christ sent his own son to redeem you. Christ has paid the price so that he this morning could offer you grace. It's so amazing because none of us deserve it. So let me ask you this question. Do you see your need for grace? So many of us spend our whole life trying to find validation from other people and God is looking at you this morning and in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, he's saying, you can have it right now in me. You can have the validation of the eternal God in me. So many of us try to live our life seeking to gain approval of our parents or of our boss or of our friends or of our neighbors. And God is looking to us and saying, everything that you desire in life, I have already given you in Christ. All the approval your heart longs for, I have given it. You see your need of it. You believe that it's offered by Christ. It's one thing to see it. It's another thing to believe that Christ is offering the grace that you need. Love what John Blanchard says here. He says, So God supplies perfectly measured grace to meet the needs of the godly. For daily needs, there's daily grace. For sudden needs, sudden grace. For overwhelming needs, overwhelming grace. God's grace is given wonderfully but not wastefully. Freely but not foolishly. Bountifully but not blindly. This is the grace that God gives. It's the work that Christ came to do. But notice that in verse 2, that when we receive God's grace, the result is then peace with God. The world longs for peace. The world longs for life free from anxiety, from wor- from worry, and only in peace. The grace that is offered to us through Christ, will we ever find it? This reconciliation with God, this this position of sitting in a world where everything's burning, nothing is going well. Where can you point to in our world where there's something that seems to be going well? And yet the Christian has peace. You know who's the perfect example of this? Isn't Jesus Christ the perfect example of this? Did anyone face more suffering, more of a tumultuous life, Than Jesus Christ, every corner he turned in his ministry, there was constant problems, constant worry. He gets on a boat, and the boat's sinking. He gets to the crowd, and the crowd wants to stone him. Constantly he faces danger. Constantly he faces enemies. And yet there was not a person on the face of the earth in all of the history of humanity that had such peace. And this is the peace that Jesus offers you through his grace as Jesus transforms your heart. Grace and peace offered to you. The life of joy when we do what? When we set our heart on Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, let's start from or end where we began. Joy is the flag that flies in the castle of the heart when the king is in residence. Let me ask you this, who's in residence in the castle of your heart? Who's on the throne of your heart? If you make the commitment this morning, today, tomorrow, this week, for the rest of your life, you make the commitment, Christ is going to be on the throne of my heart. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to be devoted to him in holiness. I'm going to seek the grace and peace that comes from him. God's promising us this morning that when we set our heart on him, joy is the result. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you this morning have set a foundation for us of joy. Lord, you truly long for us to experience this in, the world for, where, in a world where there's every reason for the opposite. You long for us to experience joy. And so you are pointing us to your son, and you are calling us to set our heart on him. And so we respond to you now, Lord, in song to declare this, Lord, that that is our desire. Lord, that we want to see your work happening inside of us, reaching places of our heart that we can't reach our, our, ourselves, Lord, that only Jesus can change and transform leading to a life of joy that only Jesus can bring. And so God, accomplish this in our midst. We set our heart on Jesus Christ. We desire to live for him. We desire to follow him. And Lord, we proclaim this truth because that is our desire. We pray this all in the name of your son. Amen.